Well, thank you, Dr. York, and it's, uh, it's great to be back at Southern. Uh, it's been a long time. I, I was here giving lectures uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and uh, have, have, I've just got so many great friends here, and uh, it's an honor to give the Julius Gay uh, lectures this year, and I want to thank Dr. Moeller and uh, Dr. Aiken for uh, inviting me and, and setting this up. And I do bring you greetings, of course, from uh, Midwestern Seminary, uh, where I've taught full-time now for two years after a, a long stint at Baylor University in, in Texas. And uh, Midwestern, of course, is in Kansas City. You may, you may have heard of our football team. Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress. Uh, <clears throat> I want to say just a, a quick word about the lectures overall. Uh, you, you know what the, the series title is. It's an awfully big topic to take on about, you know, is America founded as a Christian nation? And if you know anything about my work, I'm, I'm not inclined to give you a particularly straightforward answer to that, to that question. Um, and so what I, what I want to do instead in these lectures is, is really um, to think about different uh, vignettes in, in the American founding period very broadly construed to include, say, the first 50 years of, of America as an independent nation, and to think about what difference that Christianity made uh, in, in the founding. Um, maybe this lecture might be the most uh, straightforward lecture on the topic. Uh, because we're going to talk about uh, the appeal to divine sanction in, in the founding years of 75 and, and, and 1776. Uh, but then look at uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, idiosyncratic faith and, and beliefs, in particular the uh, Jefferson Bible, to look at what kind of the range of possible views of Christianity uh, were at, at the time of the founding. Um, and then uh, my third lecture, is going to be on the Second Great Awakening, uh, which I, I think clearly makes America more Christian than it had been in 1776, uh, because this is the time of massive expansion of the Baptists and, and Methodists in particular. Uh, but then at the end of the Second Great Awakening comes the controversial figure of Charles Finney, uh, who, especially from a reform perspective, may uh, extend Christian influence in some uh, troubling or problematic ways. So, so anyway, that's that's where we're going. But but today, I do want to talk about the American Revolution itself. Americans today may forget uh, just how difficult it was for patriots to justify war and independence in 1775 and 76. Uh, popular resistance against taxes was was one thing. Destruction of British property, such as in the Boston Tea Party of 1773 took matters to another level. Military conflict beginning at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts in April 1775 amplified the stakes even more, but finally rejecting the king and declaring legal separation from the British was an audacious step for which Americans could point to few historical parallels. Complaints about unfair tax policies were suitable rationales for framing petitions, but shedding British and American blood uh, demanded more. A cause of the American Revolution's magnitude, I think, required divine sanction. War typically draws out appeals to divine backing, especially in nations such as the United States and Britain, which have deep roots in the Judeo-Christian biblical tradition. 
Some of these appeals seem manipulative or insincere. Sometimes they seem entirely earnest. A few Americans, for example, would quibble with General Dwight Eisenhower's D-Day message in 1944 when he called the effort to liberate Europe from Nazi tyranny a, quote, great crusade and asked all Americans to pray for God's blessing on this, quote, great and noble undertaking. So in this lecture, I want to consider several instances of appeals to divine sanction in the American Revolution in 1775 and 76, when Americans made key decisions about resistance, war, and independence. I'm going to focus on well-known instances just because they are well-known and they show how important these appeals to divine sanction were. Uh, they include Patrick Henry's Liberty of Death speech in 1775, Thomas Paine's pamphlet Common Sense in 76, and of course the Declaration of Independence in 1776. These three texts appeared during the most critical 16 months of the American patriot journey from resistance to independence. And assessing these will illustrate, I think, essential points about the way that Americans justified resistance and independence. The first of these points is the most straightforward. Appeals to divine sanction were omnipresent in 1775 and 76. These appeals were not omnipresent because patriot leaders were all devout Christians. Of the primary authors considered here, only one of the three, Patrick Henry, was a traditional Christian. The appeals to God's blessing also remind us that the Bible, or at least theological language, was central to the rhetorical re uh, repertoire of American revolutionaries. And finally, theological and natural law justifications for liberty also gave some Americans resources to make reformist arguments on questions such as religious liberty and slavery. So our first text is Patrick Henry's Liberty of Death speech, delivered on March 23rd, 1775, in the Virginia Convention assembled at St. John's Church in Richmond, Virginia. The convention had reached an impasse about next steps in the burgeoning crisis with Britain over tax policy and parliamentary power. Should Virginians continue to petition Br British officials for relief, or should they begin defensive preparations for war? Henry responded with the liberty or death oration, long regarded as the most scintillating speech of the entire revolutionary era. Henry's insistence on military preparation was quite radical in March 1775. For feeble colonial militias to take up arms against Britain, one of the world's most powerful militaries, seemed nearly suicidal to many. In the face of such objections, Henry insisted that the, quote, God of hosts would be on America's side if they summoned the courage to fight. Not only did Henry claim divine sanction for military preparation, but he packed a surprising amount of biblical content into his short speech, which contains just over 1,200 words total in print. In fact, the closer that you look at the liberty or death speech, it, the more it seems like a brief revival sermon than a cerebral discourse on political principles. And given Henry's background, this was not surprising. 
Henry's family was formerly Anglican, the typical denomination for Virginia landowners and political leaders. But Henry's mother, Sarah, was an evangelical Christian and a Presbyterian, having joined the church of Samuel Davies in Hanover, Virginia. Sarah relished the revival preaching of the First Great Awakening, which was still stirring among, among Virginians during Henry's teenage years. Family tradition records that Sarah would take young Patrick to hear Davies' riveting sermons, and Henry recalled that Davies was not just the best preacher he ever heard, but the, quote, greatest orator he knew in any vocation, and that's quite something coming from Patrick Henry. This background helps to explain Henry's seamless channeling of Scripture in Liberty or Death. Henry's deep familiarity with Scripture was not unusual, of course. Even skeptical and deistic founders, such as Benjamin Franklin, were thoroughly conversant with the text of the King James Bible. Franklin, who grew up in a Puritan family in Boston, probably knew the Bible better than any of the other major founders, despite his profession of deism as an, as an adult. The surviving version of Henry's speech also suggests that his audience, the leaders of Virginia's patriot movement, were sufficiently familiar with scripture that Henry did not need to supply chapter and verse references for them when he cited biblical phrases. Most of the identifiable scripture references in Liberty or Death came from the prophet Jeremiah. For example, Henry warned that if Virginians failed to realize the gravity of the threat against their liberty, they could be like, quote, those who having eyes see not and having ears hear not. This was a citation uh, most directly of Jeremiah 5.21, though the Bible repeatedly uses the image of people who have eyes and ears but do not see or hear. Other references are just faint echoes, maybe ones I think for which Henry may not have even consciously cited the Bible. For example, in the same sentence with the eyes and ears allusion, Henry speaks of, quote, the things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation, likely an allusion to Hebrews 6.9 and its phrase, things that accompany salvation. God attended to eternal salvation, but here Henry wanted Virginians to wake up, perceive the crisis, and attend to their temporal salvation. So what purposes did these biblical references serve? One was that the Bible, and Jeremiah in particular, simply provided much of the liberty of death oration structure. The King James Bible is the most rhetorically influential text in the history of the English language. And Henry's speech was a case study for how the Bible could serve as a toolbox for effective oratory, with images such as those unhearing ears and unseeing eyes. Henry further warned that British assurances of goodwill, goodwill could become a, quote, snare to your feet, Jeremiah 18.22. And next, he warned them not to allow themselves to be betrayed with a kiss. Reference, reference obviously, to Jesus' arrest that would have been familiar to virtually any English-speaking person who spent any time in church, and so on. But these biblical phrases did not just provide structure. They provided an appeal to divine sanction, implying that Henry himself was serving as a prophet-like figure in the revolutionary crisis. 
This was a role he had embraced since the first days of the troubles with Britain when he had denounced the Stamp Act as a freshman legislator in Virginia in 1765. Henry raised the stakes on divine sanction in liberty or death when he insisted that if he failed to call for military preparation, it would amount to, quote, an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. Majesty of heaven was an allusion to Hebrews 8.1. He insisted that when all realistic options for political relief were exhausted, then, quote, an appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left us. Henry assumed that God would be on their side in this, quote, holy cause of liberty, and that divine aid would trump their manifestly weak military capacities. Quote, we are not weak, he insisted if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. The God of nature would reappear as nature and nature's God in the Declaration of Independence. But here the phrase meant that God would turn America's earthly natural advantages, including a mobilized population defending their homeland against an invading army, into a formula for victory. Quote, besides, sir, we shall not fight our battle, battles alone, Henry continued. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. Here he promised that if Americans manifested the courage to fight, God would providentially prompt other nations, most obviously the French, to ally with the fledgling American nation. Henry believed he could credibly take up such a prophetic stance due to his 10 years of unrelenting service to the patriot cause. He suggested in the speech's opening that it would be easier to remain silent and dodge the awful responsibility of calling the people to arms. But that would be shirking his God-given duty. In one of his last citations of Jeremiah, Henry warned that, quote, Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Jeremiah 6, 14. He predicted, he predicted correctly that soon Virginians would receive word of war breaking out in Massachusetts. Why stand we here idle, he asked, in a phrase from Matthew 26. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. And finally, he raised his arms and declared in a cadence reminiscent of Joshua, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The speech persuaded the convention, which adopted Henry's call to prepare the militia to resist the British army. Some critics regarded Henry as a holier-than-thou demagogue, however. One said that his speech was infamously insolent and that Henry had become, quote, so infatuated that he goes about praying and preaching among the common people. Unlike Paine and Jefferson, though, there is no reason to question the consistency behind Henry's appeal to divine sanction and his personal religious beliefs. Henry as I said, was a lifelong committed Anglican, which complemented the influences from his mother, 
from Samuel Davies and evangelical Presbyterianism. If anything, his Christian convictions became more overt later in life, prompted in part by his concern regarding Thomas Paine's aggressively skeptical book, The Age of Reason. As Henry told his daughter in 1796, Paine's writings reminded him that, quote, the religion of Christ has from its first appearance in the world been attacked in vain by all the wits, philosophers, and wise ones of the present age. The broad resonance of biblical appeals was part of the reason that Christian critics such as Henry found it so appalling that the disbelieving pain eventually turned his rhetorical guns against the Bible itself. Now, Paine's common sense appeared 20 years earlier, before Henry was complaining about him to his daughter, at the beginning of 1776. The war with Britain had already been going for nine months, but Americans still found it excruciating to make a final break with Britain. So working with Benjamin Franklin and the Patriot leader Benjamin Rush, Payne began drafting common sense in fall 1775, framing an argument for independence. And the provocative result succeeded beyond all expectations with some 50,000 to 75,000 copies of the pamphlet in circulation by the end of 1776. And many people heard excerpts from Common Sense read out loud in taverns and coffee houses. America in 1776 was a profoundly oral and communal culture, so Paine crafted Common Sense to sound good when read publicly, just like a sermon would. And in this oral quality, it had obvious similarities to the liberty of death speech. Appeals to divine sanction also came fast and furious in common sense, which is ironic, as you can see, since Paine later became known as the most radical anti-Christian skeptic among the founders, clinching this reputation with the age of reason. But like his mentor Franklin, Paine knew the Bible well and was prepared to use it to great political effect. We also don't know the extent to which Paine doubted Christianity and the Bible by 1775. In one of the pamphlet's most moving passages, Paine suggested that the word of God would rule in America in place of a king. But where, say some, is the king of America? I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above and doth not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Britain. Yet, that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors, let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter. Let it be brought forth, placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed thereon, by which the world may know that so far as we approve of monarchy, that in America the law is king. Sounds good read out loud, doesn't it? Skeptic or not, Paine knew just how to speak the language of Bible-believing Protestants in America. Paine's own family background was in Quakerism and Anglicanism, and he seems to have had some exposure to Methodist preaching before he left England. Unlike the Declaration of Independence, common sense did not just use generic theological language about God in the Bible. And unlike liberty or death, it actually engaged in detailed biblical commentary, not just references and allusions. Paine particularly focused on 1 Samuel 8. In that passage, as you may remember, the elders of Israel asked the aging Samuel to, quote, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
And God's response was indignant. They have rejected me that I should not reign over, over them, the Lord told Samuel. Samuel warned the Israelites that a king would abuse them and that he would even place burdensome taxes on them. But the Israelites persisted, demanding that they be granted a king, quote, that we also may be like all the nations. Payne concluded from this text that, quote, the Almighty hath here entered his protest against monarchical government. And this fact was, quote, true, Payne insisted, or scripture is false. Now, given that Payne was trying to delegitimize monarchy, his application of this passage may seem somewhat obvious. But 1 Samuel 8 was not an oft-discussed text for either religious or political purposes in Anglo-American publications in the 1700s. It was occasionally interpreted along Payne's radical anti-monarchical lines in the heady days of the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution in the 1600s in England. This uh, Hebraic Republican, small r Republican argument, suggested that God originally meant for Israel to be a republic, not a monarchy. And such a biblical contention against kingly rule largely fell silent between the 1690s and 1776. It's always difficult to interpret silence, but it may be that ministers and theologians realized that the first Samuel text potentially held radical Republican implications, the precise quality that attracted Paine to it. Paine's phrase, the law is king, echoed Scottish divine Samuel Rutherford's Lex Rex, 1644. Rutherford had argued against the absolute authority of monarchs since even a king was subject to divine law. Rutherford's work was regarded as subversive by the administration of King Charles II, who assumed the throne in 1660 after the Republican tumult of the English Civil War. Only Rutherford's illness and death in 1661 kept him from facing trial for sedition by the court of Charles II. Rutherford's work suggested that a tyrannical king was a curse, not a blessing, if monarchs were absolute sovereigns, Rutherford concluded, then a people praying, quote, Lord, give us a king, as they did in 1 Samuel 8, might as well pray, quote, make us slaves, Lord, take our liberty and power from us, and give a power unlimited and absolute to one man. So Lex Rex was part of the long tradition of Anglo-American resistance literature that influenced the American patriots. Now, John Adams wrote repeatedly about Thomas Paine's argument against monarchy from 1 Samuel 8. John Adams in his adulthood was a Unitarian, preferring a rationalist ethics-focused version of Christianity over the traditional Calvinism of his pre-revolutionary Massachusetts home. But Adams, like Patrick Henry, deplored Thomas Paine's radical skepticism and anti-clericalism. Adams told Benjamin Rush in 1809 that he had confronted Paine in 1776 about, quote, his grave arguments from the Old Testament to prove that monarchy was unlawful in the sight of God. Do you seriously believe, Paine, said I, in that pious doctrine of yours? This put him in good humor, and he laughed out. The Old Testament, said he, 
I don't believe in the Old Testament. I have had thoughts of publishing my sentiments of it, but upon deliberation, I have concluded to put that off till the latter part of my life. If Adam's recollection was accurate, Paine here was referring to arguments against the Bible he would publish in the Age of Reason. In his autobiography, Adams offered a slightly different version of, the, of this alleged conversation with Paine. There, Adams said that when common sense came out, he, Adams, liked its argument for independence, but Adams regarded Paine's sentiments about monarchy in 1 Samuel 8 as, quote, ridiculous. Whether they proceeded from honest ignorance or foolish superstition on one hand, or from willful sophistry and knavish hypocrisy on the other, I know not. Again, when Adams confronted Paine, quote, he laughed and said that he had taken his ideas in that part from John Milton, who had written similarly about 1 Samuel 8 in the 1600s, and then expressed a contempt of the Old Testament and indeed of the Bible at large. Well, without evidence to corroborate Adams' recollections from a long time later, it would be a stretch to conclude that Paine's use of 1 Samuel 8 was wholly manipulative and insincere. But like Jefferson's invocation of God in the Declaration, surely Paine's use of the Old Testament was tactical, as historian J.C.D. Clark puts it. Paine and Jefferson both knew that they were speaking to an American public that held the Bible in high regard. Most readers would, would have been familiar with scriptural accounts, such as what transpired in 1 Samuel 8. Or, if they didn't recall its precise details, they would have instantly recognized the passage as an important commentary upon monarchy simply because it was in the Bible. Whatever Paine and Jefferson's own doubts about the sacred text, they were prepared to use the Bible, or at least rhetoric about God, to make the case for independence. But Paine's biblical argument was controversial. Paine's gloss on 1 Samuel 8 was one of the few uh, anyone had ever advanced in, in print. And Paine's redeployment of this, of this Hebraic Republican argument about God's opposition to monarchy was not universally accepted, even among the patriots, as seen as, in John Adams' re reaction to it. But even if some regarded it as ridiculous, Paine knew that if Americans were going to reject monarchy, it would help to provide a biblical warrant for doing so. And some patriot clergy, such as Peter Whitney of Massachusetts, wholly embraced Paine's argument. Whitney quoted common sense in his sermon, American Independence Vindicated, arguing that before 1 Samuel 8, Israel had no earthly king, and, quote, it was held sinful to acknowledge any being under that title but the Lord of hosts. If Paine inaugurated the public debate about independence, the Declaration of Independence rep represented America's leap into the great unknown. Not surprisingly, Jefferson and the Continental Congress urgently needed an appeal to divine warrant for breaking from, with England, and they hoped to put the argument in theological terms that were both broad and bracing. They certainly did not want to set off a sectarian controversy in what the Declaration said about God. Uh, but they also didn't want to make the language so generic that it lacked persuasive power. And it's instructive on this point to compare the Declaration of Independence to the comparatively vague Virginia Declaration of Rights penned by George Mason and adopted about three weeks before the Declaration of Independence. 
The Virginia Declaration reaches the same conclusion about human equality as, the, as does the Declaration of Independence, but in language that was more philosophical, saying, quote, all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights. Snooze, right? I mean, compared to the Declaration, it's not, it just doesn't have much oomph to it. So while Jefferson and Mason may have meant effectively the same thing, Jefferson's language of equality by creation was more powerful. You know the language. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, Jefferson did not employ theological language because of his own religious devotion. Reared in the Anglican church, Jefferson already seems to have begun to doubt basic Christian doctrine by the mid-1770s. And he certainly had begun to do so by the late 1780s when he, for example, compared the Bible's miracles to similar episodes in Roman mythology. In a letter written in 1825, Jefferson explained that the Declaration was not seeking, quote, originality of principle or sentiment. Instead, it was intended, he said, to be an expression of the American mind and of the harmonizing sentiments of the day. Unlike Paine, he was not looking to cause exasperation, at least not about divine sanction. The mere argument for independence was controversial enough. He would assert that independence was justified because God had given Americans rights that no person, including King George III, could justly violate. Jefferson focused on harmonizing sentiments, or at least principles that could unify those who agreed that independence was necessary despite the gravity of the decision. So the Declaration also opened with an appeal to divine sanction and its assertion that there was a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled Americans. And here, Jefferson was suggesting that there was a created order which justified a periodic return to man's original created state, a time prior to the formation of government in which humans were, quote, separate and equal. Many have understandably, understandably focused on the deistic implications of the phrase nature and nature's God. And Jefferson surely was ambivalent about a meticulously providential personal God who was involved with the everyday affairs of men. But Jefferson's God was discoverable by reason and by the order of creation. To Jefferson, people stood equal before God because they equally came from him as the creator. So Jefferson had many reservations about Christian doctrine, but his views about the created order were fairly conventional for the time. The Continental Congress believed that Jefferson's draft of the Declaration was headed in the right direction, but as they edited it, they concluded the Declaration with final appeals to divine warrant. Jefferson had grounded the case for equality and rights and common creation by God, but the document had basically dropped the topic of divine approval when Jefferson addressed the long, quote, history of repeated injuries and usurpations of the British against the American colonists. So members of Congress wanted to return to the theme of God's sanction at the end. And this resulted in the document's most direct comment 
on the judgment of God when the declaration said that delegates, quote, appealed to the, quote, supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. And finally, the delegates professed a, quote, firm reliance on the protection of divine providence in their endeavors. Um, Americans who supported the patriot cause, of course, were quite enthusiastic about the declaration. Uh, critics in Britain and loyalists in America were not impressed by the declaration, uh, and they scoffed at its religious rhetoric. The author of the popular English tract, The Rights of Great Britain, asserted against the claims of America, 1776, argued that, quote, the law of God and of nature is on the side not of the American colonists, but of Britain, just as God's laws supported a generous, quote, parent against an undutiful child. So there was debate, but not mostly among the patriots. Maybe the most intriguing responses to appeals to divine sanction came from reformers who sympathized with the American cause, but who worried that inconsistency or hypocrisy might invite judge, God's judgment on the patriots. And the two most common concerns along these lines were religious liberty and slavery. Uh, Baptists, as I hope most of you know, had argued since the outset of the revolutionary crisis that patriots' complaints against unjust taxes would fall flat if they continued to impose religious taxes on Christian dissenters like Baptists in order to support the colony's established churches. Um, and they, there would have been terrible persecution in the colonies, especially in Massachusetts and Virginia. On the eve of the revolution, dozens of Baptist preachers were put in jail for illegal preaching in Virginia in the late 1760s and early 1770s, and so Baptists asked, how could the patriots tout their commitment to liberty when they denied dissenters the freedom to worship God in accordance with the dictates of conscience? This should do your Baptist heart good. Uh, so people like Isaac Backus, John Leland, were making this argument about the potential hypocrisy of the American cause. <coughs> Similar reformist arguments came from critics of slavery. Um, how could patriots claim to be concerned about liberty when they de denied basic freedoms to enslave people? Perhaps the most trenchant anti-slavery argument came from the militiaman and former indentured servant Lemuel Haynes of Massachusetts. The evangelical Christian Haynes would receive Congregationalist ordination in 1785, becoming the first black ordained pastor in the United States. Haynes wrote the unpublished manuscript Liberty further extended in 1776 as a direct response to the Declaration of Independence and its appeal to divine sanction. Liberty further extended conspicuously quoted the Declaration's statement that all men are created equal on the title page, leaving no doubt that Haynes was responding to the Declaration's notion of equality by God's common creation. So Haynes further extended, quote unquote, the American case for liberty by taking equality by creation to its logical conclusion. Quote, liberty is a jewel which was handed down to man from the cabinet of heaven. It proceeded from the supreme legislature of the universe. So it is he, God, which hath a sole right to take away. Blacks and whites were of the same human species and all were created in the same way by God. 
Their desire for liberty was a commonly shared principle and a, quote, law of nature. Therefore, quote, liberty is equally as precious to a black man as it is to a white one, and bondage equally as intolerable to the one as it is to the other. And this appeal for divine approval could have uh, uh, that, that appeal to divine approval could have unexpected applications when it was put in the hands of those with qualms about slavery. A court ruling in Massachusetts effectively ended slavery in the state in 1781, but it would prove difficult, as we well know, to root out slavery in the states further south where the institution was more central to the economy. So as we have seen, patriot appeals to divine sanction were not conversation starters, stoppers, uh, both per pervasive and provocative. They were as likely to generate debate as consensus. They elicited indignation among loyalists who believed that the patriots were masking a basically immoral revolution with a veneer of divine approval. Some appeals to God in the Bible, such as Paine's use of 1 Samuel 8, struck even some patriot leaders as extreme or ludicrous. One's response to the appeal to divine sanction did not simply depend on which side you were on, although partisan alignments obviously made a difference. But it would be difficult to imagine Americans in 1776 or in any American war not making at least generic appeals to God's blessing. The human and material sacrifices of war demand higher justifications than, for example, an unwillingness to pay taxes. Appeals to divine sanction and prayers for protection kept appearing throughout the Revolutionary War. They conveyed not only a hope that God would bless them, but that America would be the sort of nation that God would bless. Cocky presumption of God's favor was a surefire way to earn disfavor, they believed, and that's why the Continental Congress, following older precedents by Anglo-American legislatures, not only called for national days of prayer and thanksgiving, but also of days of fasting and, quote, humiliation, humiliation. The Congress was so sure that national sins would bring down God's wrath uh, that they insisted on having days like this, and so, for example, in 1779, the National Congress called for a, a day of national fasting and humiliation that God might, quote, avert those impending calamities which we have too well deserved, that he will grant us his grace to repent of our sins and amend our lives according to his holy word, and that he will continue that wonderful protection with hath, which hath led us through the paths of danger and distress, and that he will give wisdom to our counsels, firmness to our resolutions, and victory to our arms. Such prayers appeared regularly, both in formal legislative proclamations and in the private devotions of American citizens. But the need for God's blessing seemed especially acute in 1775 and 76, when patriots led Americans into war and independence. And those audacious steps left many Americans looking for biblical warrant and hoping for divine support. Thank you very much.